Well, podcast family, we did it. This is our last episode for the year 2023. Yeah, we've had a great year and we look forward to more fun things in 2024. And so as we wrap up 2023, I thought, you know, it's New Year's Eve. I think that there's a lot of lust going around. I mean, can we be honest? Especially you get some of grandma's little tonic in you. You, uh, you fellas been doing a bit of boozing, have you? Sucking back on grandpa's old cough medicine? No, it's not that kind of lust. But we are talking about lust as in lower urine segment thickness. Yeah, L-U-S-T is actually a gynecological term. Not one of the seven deadly sins, but the lower urine segment thickness. Because today, on the 30th of December, I received a message from one of our podcast family members who said, hey, there's actually this Facebook uh, threads page going on, and they're talking about measuring the lower uterine segment thickness in patients with a previous C-section as one of the independent variables to consider whether the patient should have a TOLAC or a repeat C-section. Um, and I know that there's some data out there. So is this legit? Is this evidence-based? And what do we do with that? And so I couldn't resist. So I turned that into the team. We were planning on doing one final episode before the year is over. And so we decided on lust. So in this episode, we're going to talk about lust and TOLAC. Should we be measuring the lower uterine segment thickness? There is a lot of data on it and even some systematic reviews. And so if the evidence is there... Why is this not done more commonly? Well, we're going to answer that question in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, I have to say it before we go right into the info. Trust me, I'm not nuts. We do take a break periodically, and it's not typically our habit to do something so close to New Year's Eve, but we did have some time, and we got this this comment from uh, our, our Facebook page. And, and I just couldn't resist. It was so good that I, we, we just had to put something together. Plus, it really was a commitment from our team to do something one last time before 2023. So because it is coming out on New Year's Eve, I do want to officially, and I know we did our video on our Instagram, um, you know, thanking everyone. But honestly, guys, thank you for a great 2023. I mean, obviously, this is a podcast. We need a listenership. Uh, and we would probably do this if our listenership was 10 because we love to do it. But thankfully, it's significantly more than that. And it's across the globe. So thank you just for your your uh, virtual companionship on this journey. It, it really is a passion of mine. And we look to to do more fun things and more educational uh, programs in 2024. So I, I just wanted to say that. I mean, honestly, from Australia, New Zealand, and I mentioned this many times, uh, it, it's just I, I, it just really encourages me. We want to get these messages uh, on our channel. All right. Having said that, let's get into this content now. Uh, to be clear, I'm very social media friendly. I, I, I like the things that we have online, and again, we're just expanded onto our Instagram. But I honestly was was not aware that somewhere on Facebook there's some kind of uh, thread uh, about measuring the lower uterine segment before TOLAC. And as always, you know, I, I'm, I, I love stuff that's out there and I'm also a little cautious on it because this topic 
is, is that's exactly how we should approach it. Okay. We should love that people are putting out data that's out there, but we also have to be a little cautious. Now, let me be very clear. There is a lot of data about measuring the lower uterine segment, typically transabdominally, even though some reports show transvaginal. The problem is that you don't exactly know where the hysterotomy is. And the hysterotomy, remember, typically is made in an obstetrical region of the uterus called the lower uterine segment that doesn't exist in gynecology, right? In the non-gravid uterus, there's no lower uterine segment. I mean, it's the cervix, it's the isthmus, uh, it's the corpus and the fundus. There's no lower uterine segment. That The lower uterine segment, in fact, is the internal cervical ring that's pulled up uh, in the last weeks of pregnancy, Okay. Now, you can definitely see in a gynecological uterus the niche defect, and we've covered that in the past. You can see where that scar was because you can actually see a divot, uh, especially when the, when the malmetrum isn't sewed correctly. You can see where that is. However, in pregnancy, when this is being proposed, which is at 36 weeks to 38 weeks, even though some reports have it as early as 35, um, it, it's really hard to find that anatomical zone because of, of the stretching and the anatomical movement that that previous incision has, all right? So to be very clear, while some of the data shows transabdominal measuring right behind the bladder, some have looked transvaginal. And this is one of the issues when we take a look at, at this data as a whole, and we're going to do it here, um, that why it gets complicated and why to be very, to be just be very upfront, ACOG does not consider that right now something that we should do in every case. Okay, so first of all, does a college recognize lower uterine segment segment thickness as an independent risk for rupture? Absolutely. Now, does the college say that we should use that to allow some women or not allow women to undergo TOLAC? No. Okay. Now that seems contradictory, but trust me, it isn't. And I'm going to explain why in a minute. All right. So we cannot ignore the fact, and that thread is right. There is absolutely data that a thinner lower uterine segment late into third trimester defined as greater than 35 weeks, typically, usually around 36 weeks, can be associated with some uh, uterine scar defects and rupture. But notice that word can be associated, okay? It doesn't mean that it will be. Now, just like with Amnisure, which looks at uh, placental alpha microglobulin 1 for ruptured membranes, or ROM+, which is alpha fetoprotein and insulin-like growth factor binding protein 1, the two biomarkers uh, that are used as a competitor to the single biomarker of PAMG1 and Amnisure to detect rupture of membranes, just like both of those tests have their value clinically in their negative predictive value, that seems to be the case here with the lower uterine segment thickness. So everybody agrees that the thicker that segment is, then the more reassuring it is. Even though it doesn't mean that the patient cannot rupture, it points away from that, all right? But it doesn't guarantee the, the elimination of rupture risk. However, the positive predictive value is where things fall apart. This is why we have to understand the difference between having data out there uh, and then actually making it clinically applicable, okay? Because remember, right now, ACOG, SMFM, um, and and even uh, European uh, uh, societies all recognize, yes, thinner lower uterine segment in the third trimester can be considered a risk, 
but but it should not be a standalone tool to prevent women from having toe lack. Okay, it, it shouldn't. And and I know that makes people nervous, but I'm going to explain why, as I've already mentioned, in a moment. Okay, so I'm going to look up this Facebook uh, thread just to be very clear as a disclosure or disclaimer. I have not looked at that. I don't want to get into that, nor do I want to comment on that because I don't. I just don't want to get into it. But but so we have to be very clear. If ever asked, is there data that checking lower uterine segment thickness in the third trimester? Uh, can can be correlated to some adverse issues. Absolutely. The problem is nobody knows what to do with it. And I told you I was going to tell you why in a minute. Well, let me just tell you now. And the reason is because the majority of those studies are observational. And then there's nothing wrong with that. However, when you actually take a look at it, stratified and accounted for as an RCT, which there aren't many, but I'm going to show you one that was published just last year, even though it was done previously as an abstract uh, before that at a professional meeting. When it's done as an RCT, the data doesn't stand up. Okay, so it's very controversial. And, and, and I'm going to give you my personal take. What do I do for TOLAC patients? Do we measure the thickness of the lower uterine segment uh, in late in the third trimester to try to dictate uh, or counsel patients one way or the other? I'm going to tell you if we do that or not at the end. Okay. But, uh, but this is where we're going. Remember, we always try to give you our outline, give you our roadmap. And which brings me to this next little side comment. I, I did receive a recent comment. Guys, we read all of them. We read every single comment that comes in. Uh, either Mike does or mainly I do, like 95% I do because I'm, I'm, I'm always connected. I mean, I get dings on my phone for everything. Ding, ding, whether it's an email, a calendar alert. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's not stop. Uh, but but I, I'm just, I'm so, you know, uh, plugged in. I, I don't want to miss anything vital. So I really need to turn down some of my alerts. But anyway, one of my alerts came in from one of our uh, podcast family members, members and said, hey, is there a way you could trim down some of your content and stop a lot of the verbosity? I mean, you just you kind of talk some too much sometimes uh, and you tell us about what's coming. Can you just tell us what it is? Uh, it's a good comment. And I take that to heart. Uh, and so my answer is no. <laughs> but let me explain why. You see, if I, just, if I just tell you what it is, it's fine. It's going to make sense. But as always, the way that we learn, guys, I want you to let you know, we've been doing this podcast since 2016, right? We used to be on another channel and we moved over uh, that whole thing. That whole archive is gone. I mean, it's we had, I don't know, a couple of no, I can't say a couple of hundred. I think about a hundred episodes. And then that channel went away, that platform. And then so we moved over to to this one in like 2018. And we've been here ever since. Anyway, um, the whole purpose is when when we do a podcast, we want to deliver it in a way that's going to register, okay? And we've done a lot of research on this, guys. Trust me. The, the reason that we have an outline at the beginning, and I tell you where we're going, is because the data shows that for audio, audio, uh, audio, audio listeners, for people who are uh, audio learners, that's where I was going. Good Lord have mercy. Audio listeners Having a, a navigation set, having a little map at the beginning, and then giving the data seems to register best. Also, data shows that repetition is how audio learners um, remember better. So if I tell it to you once and then we move on, it's okay. But by, if we tell it more, more than once and in a different way and then integrate it back into the message, that repetition helps seal the concept. Okay? So that's another comment that this... Uh, uh, podcast family member had is well, you know you're kind of repetitive 
I, I get that. I mean, first, ouch. I mean, okay. But there's a reason for that because that's how people learn. Okay. And then the other comment was, hey, could you, yeah, I kind of could do without the little noise interludes, the little music breaks. It's kind of not necessary. Well taken. Again, ouch, but well taken. <laughs> but the and the reason why we have those, you all ever wonder why we have those little interludes in there? And sometimes I know what they are, sometimes I don't. Remember, I just, I sometimes, if I'm with uh, the other member of our team, uh, who helps put this thing together, um, he'll tell me what's coming. And if not, I just kind of record and then I send it to him in an audio file on a zip fo- folder and then he packages it up nicely, right? So sometimes I know how it's going to come out. Sometimes I don't, uh, except I know what the content is. But anyway, one thing that we can agree on, whether I know what the interludes are or not, is that the reason we put those in there is because proven for over 15 years of data for those that are learners by 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 listening, Okay, versus visual uh, learners or, or reading. Those who are audio learners, actually, when you, when you do that little sound, that's called a brain break, a learning break. Okay, and what that does is that prevents audio hypnosis, like highway hypnosis, where you, know, you, you go down five miles and you're like, oh my goodness, what, what happened? Because you were in a zone and you haven't really learned anything. Same thing happens with, 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 audio learning, all right? So whenever we say a concept and we put in an interlude, that interlude is meant to draw the learner back. It's basically to wake them up. It's like, hey, we're still here. And then that sets their brain wave. Again, it actually resets the learning circuits. So that's why we do what we do. So yes, I give you an outline at the beginning to let you know where we're going. Second, we put in those little interludes um, because it, it seems to retrain the brain and we're repetitive to establish, uh, to help the, establish the concept in memory. Okay. So when I first read that message, I sent that over to one of our uh, uh, colleagues who helps with the episode and to a student who helps put this thing together. And I'm like, Hey, um, should I be kind of hurt by this or offended by this? Or, or do we need to change what we're doing? No, think about it. We've got people all over the world and this N of one uh, I mean, we had a discussion on it. And I mean, by discussion, I mean a couple of texts back and forth. They're like, man, keep doing what you're doing. It's okay. It's an end of one. There's science behind the way that we're doing it. And then our students said, hey, I agree. If not, it becomes monotone and this narrative uh, that without breaks uh, and people can can lose their their attention. So everything that we do is an intentional uh, design. So yes, we give you that outline in the beginning, like I just did. Yes, we're going to be repetitive for some concepts to establish the memory. And those little interludes, um, they kind of have a place. So having a patient with multiple C-sections totally scares me at repeat section because even though you can get the pre-op ultrasound that says no accreta, which is good. I mean, that's what we should do. Uh, there's always stuff that can be missed. So it makes me super nervous. And at the same time, when I have a TOLAC, I'm super nervous because I don't want that patient to have a rupture. So we can't get away from the nervousness with the C-section issue, Right. Now, of course, there is a move. If we can steer a patient towards a safe TOLAC, then that's great. Of course, there are, there are risk factors for failure like, oh, my goodness, hey, you pushed uh, for three hours and the baby never came down from zero with your first C-section. The chance of, of that happening again is pretty darn high because that's 
likely a pelvic outlet issue, and that's not going to change. Your bony pelvis is your bony pelvis. So you can counsel the patient on those things versus, say, a patient who you know, had an unsuccessful induction, remained at two centimeters, and then they called it quits after you know, 18 hours of Pitocin and she was ruptured. Uh, okay, she should try as long as her incision was, was routine in the lower uterine segment. So there are clinical factors that can help guide the patient for success. Okay, but that's for success of vaginal birth, success of TOLAC to get you a VBAC. There really isn't a lot of models to look for risk for rupture, okay, outside of the patient's history, like a, a T type of incision or a classical C section previous myomectomy. Those are the historical things, but there isn't really an objective tool that we can go and go, ah, maybe that's going to increase your risk of rupture, and so maybe not try it. This was the purpose, this was the movement, this was the impetus to why people started to look at measuring the lower uterine segment to see if that, in fact, could be an independent variable to keep patients safe during TOLAX. And this is nothing new. One of the biggest studies uh, that drew attention to this was back in The Lancet, back in 1996, 1996. Now, remember, this is when things were changing, right? It used to be once a section, always a section, and then TOLACs were like, hey, we've got to do something. Our, our C-section numbers are out of control compared to other countries, and there's other issues like abnormal placentation. So this is where the tide's starting to turn, all right? So as the tide started to turn towards TOLAC to have VBAC success, the concern was, are we going to put patients at risk because of rupture? So this big observational study in 1996 led by Rosenberg, who initially published this as an abstract, then got a peer-reviewed into The Lancet, was one of the biggest that looked at this. The title was Ultrasonographic Measurement of the Lower Uterine Segment to Assess Risk of Defects of Scarred Uterus. End quote. Okay? Ultrasound Measurement of Lower Uterine Segment to Assess Risk of, of Defects of Scarred Uterus. Kind of seems like it should be scarred uteri, but whatever, it says uterus in the title. This was observational, and it had this this goal in this prospective observational study that blinded the obstetricians, right? They were not told the sonal results so that they wouldn't be biased. And it's very easy, as you would think. Patients had an ultrasound around 36 or 38 weeks, and they were measured uh, by the thickness of their lower uterine segment. And then they went to see what happened with their delivery. And that really started the crux of all this because here they found that, hey, as the lower uterine segment kind of thinned, it seemed to increase the risk of of adverse issues like uterine rupture. Okay, But the biggest value here was in their negative predictive value. That's the catch here because when the cutoff was more than 3.5 millimeters, 3.5 millimeters, the negative predictive value was 99.3% that they wouldn't rupture. Now, let me say that again. Did y'all get that thickness? We're talking about, guys, it's not like it's a big wall here in back of the bladder. I mean, how how thin is that lower uterine segment? Remember when you go and do a section, uh, even though they're laboring, so it's even thinner. But in general, after 36 weeks, when that internal cervical ring becomes a lower uterine segment, it's super thin. So we're talking about a value of 3.5 millimeters. With that cutoff, and it was above that, they said the negative predictive value against rupture was 99%. That's all you needed, 3.5 millimeters. 
Now, take it easy because there's going to be other publications that we're just going to touch on because it gets kind of confusing that go, oh, that's way too high. It actually is significantly uh, no different at 2.5 millimeters. Okay, so all to say there's some discrepancy here. Okay, so everybody agrees thicker is better. But what does that actually mean? What What is thicker? Is it 2.5? Is it 3.5? And nobody agrees with that, which is one of the reasons why ACOG says this is interesting. Thank you, data. Thank you, articles from the 90s and early 2000s. Super interesting. We should talk about this more, but we're not ready to use this. Okay, so it just becomes an education tool. And I'm going to give you again at the end, I'm going to tell you what, where I think this, this can live uh, as a patient education and information tool, not as a de facto test as to who can or cannot TOLAC. All right. So back in 1996 with this landmark study, otherwise known as the Rosenberg trial, this had a negative predictive value of 99%. The positive predictive value, okay, was a whopper. It was 118 Aha, CC. So this is where ACOG looks at these things and goes, guys, this is like Amnesture. This is like ROM Plus, uh, where, you know, those are happy to rule things out, but you can't rule it in, right? So a positive Amnesture, I mean, it's pretty legit. I mean, it, it could literally be that you're ruptured. That's, that's the value in that. But the positive value of that is just 50% because clinically you could have micro tears where you detect that leak, but clinically you're not ruptured. Right, so a positive amateur definitely supports the diagnosis that you're ruptured, but the value is in the negative test, and it's the same thing with ROM plus. The value because they're so good at picking it up, the value is in a negative test, and if it's positive, it could signify either gross rupture or micro tears. Okay, that's why the diagnosis is still made clinically with those considered ancillary. Right, um, same thing with FFN for preterm labor. It's a it's a a negative predictive value to rule out, okay? And for FFN, the same thing. The positive predictive value there is, is, is okay, but it's not great either. Um, it's anywhere from 50 to 70% on the FFN side. Now, I know that freaks people out because they're like, wait a minute, are you telling me that a positive amateur means that she's not ruptured? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that it's it shows leakage of amniotic fluid that could be micro tears, which may or may not be clinically significant, Y'all get that. So, yes, it's super good. At, at ROM Plus uh, and Amnesure can pick up minute amounts of biomarkers in amniotic fluid. But that doesn't mean that you're clinically ruptured. Clinically ruptured means, ah, oh, there's pooling, there's ferning, there's gush of fluid from the cervix. You see the difference. The value is in the, on their negative predictive value, not necessarily on their positive predictive value. And that's even in ACOG's uh, 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 bulletin on... Uh, rupture of membranes. And they're like, ah, you know, there are false positive out there. So all to say, just like those biomarker tests for rupture, the value here of measuring the low uterine segment seems to be in its negative predictive value, knowing that if it's small, not real sure what to do with that. Now, that's all I want to say for that from 1996 from the Rosenberg study, because we've got other things to cover. But this is the biggest one here, even though there were other studies before that. This was one of the biggest ones that was done at this level as a big prospective observational study to draw attention to this. Oh, man, I just know Mike's going to hold me accountable to that practice bulletin because I mentioned the rupture of membrane test. He's going to He's going to say it. I know it. He's going to ask for the ACOG practice bulletin on that because that's the correct thing to do. So, see... Brother, I know how you work, so I'm going to beat you to it. 
that practice bulletin on pre-labor rupture of membranes that talks about the the positive predictive value gaps on things like amnesure was ACOG's practice bulletin 217 from 2020. That bulletin states, quote, several commercially available tests for amniotic proteins are currently on the market with reported high sensitivity for PROM. However, false positive test results of 19 to 30 percent have been reported in patients with clinically intact membranes and symptoms of labor, end quote. So let's stop there for a minute. All right. So, again, I'm not saying that that those protein tests for rupture membranes aren't good. I'm saying that their value lies in the negative predictive value, just like it applies here to the thickness of the low uterine segment for TOLAC. But because we mentioned it, and that's not the focus of this episode, talking about amniotic fluid uh, and PROM, but it, it just makes that correlation that it's okay to rule things out, but sometimes the positive predictive value isn't great. And remember that based on that 1996 study, the positive predictive value of a negative lower uterine segment, negative, of a thin lower uterine segment, um, which would actually be positive, right? That's a positive finding, uh, was 11.8%. So again, let's leave Rosenberg. I think we're good with that. And let's show you the other data. And now we've tucked away the ACOG practice bulletin on ruptured membrane tests as well. To be fair, since that original trial by Rosenberg, there's been a litany of observational studies, including one from my buddy, Emmanuel Bujol. Remember Bujol, who's done a lot of work on uterine closure um, and looking at the single layer, two layers. Is it avoiding the full thickness of the myometrial closure? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to go back to the archive because we covered my friend Emmanuel Bujol, the French-Canadian. Um, from Montreal, we covered all of his data, uh, and and Stephanie as well. Uh, then his uh, his protege, now obviously done and, and doing her own research, uh, who looked at all of this. And Emmanuel Bujold has also uh, published on lower uterine segment thickness, both from a gynecological issue and here as a possible risk factor for rupture. But once again, the big catch here is that these are observational and there's a lot of things that can bias an observational study, whether it's retrospective or even prospective, as compared to a level one evidence like an RCT. Now, uh, you know, I like systematic trials, I like meta-analysis because you group things together. And yeah, I mean, this has even been looked at through systematic reviews and they all agree. Guys, nobody questions that a a thicker, lower uterine segment is more reassuring against rupture. Doesn't eliminate the risk, just more reassuring against it. But the problem all lies with nobody can can agree with what actually is a thicker, lower uterine segment. Again, is it 2.5? Is it 3? Some say 3.5. And this is one of the big issues here, why it's not standardized and why ACOG and SMFM do not use that. It is not in one of their toolkits for giving permission of who should VBAC or not. It is not an ACOG's bulletin. It's not an SMFM's uh, uh, clinical expert series. It's not in there. And the reason is, is because they lack all of this standardization and even ways to measure it. Some have measured it transabdominally. Some have measured it transvaginally. Some include the bladder wall. Some only include the myometrium. A lot of heterogeneity. In fact, one of the meta-analyses concluded exactly that, said, yes, there's evidence here that this may be legit. There may be something here. The problem is, is that there's so much heterogeneity in, in the data that 
it really becomes not usable. And again, that's not my words. This has actually been been looked at again, and it's in print. That looks interesting. Maybe we should talk about this more. But as of right now, not ready for mainstream incorporation and definitely should not be used to discourage a patient from having a TOLAC. Oh, hell, I guess I better... Again, if I mention Emmanuel Bujol, I, sh- I should give his reference as well. He actually published this in 2009 in the Gray Journal, right? The American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And his publication title was Prediction of Complete Uterine Rupture by Sonographic Evaluation of the Lower Uterine Segment. Again, Gray Journal 2009 and Emmanuel Bujold is the first listed author. In this publication, this was, again, a prospective cohort. It was observational, and they did ultrasounds between 35 and 38 weeks, looking at the thinnest measurement of what they considered to be the lower uterine segment. Now, they found a different number of what puts a patient at risk using receiver operating curves. Remember, those are the ROC curves where you look at the area under the curve. Definitely not get into that statistics because it's super boring, but this is the way that you can group data together and do a plot graph and see where things kind of pull together. Using a rock curve, they found that a thickness of 2.3 millimeters was the optimal cutoff for the prediction of possible rupture. Okay, so they use 2.3. See the discrepancy? So we have 1996 saying, no, 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 it should be 3.5. Well, yeah, that's a huge difference compared to 2.3. And then we have my buddy Emmanuel Bujold who said, no, 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 if you're if you're just 2.3 millimeters or above, you should be fine. This is one of the difficulties is that Bob in Office A uses 2.3 and then Cindy in Office B uses 3.5. So we're not standardized. And the reason we're not standardized is because nobody knows what that number is. And again, do you include just the malmetrium? Do you include the bladder wall? Uh, where do you look? Is it transabdominal, transva- transvaginal? A lot of issues here. So yes, there is definite data that a thicker low uterine segment is reassuring. But nobody really knows what that thicker is. It should be at the minimum, according to my buddy and I trust, Emmanuel Bujold, at least 2.3. But not everybody agrees. It's also a nice contrast to Rosenberg's study from 96 because Rosenberg actually included the posterior bladder wall in that measurement, which is probably why he got that 3.5 as a cutoff. I mean, that's including the bladder muscularis, right, which really shouldn't have been included in there to begin with. But Bujol, Emmanuel, just measured the full thickness of the myometrium. Uh, And so that's why he got a little thinner. See, it makes sense, right? So you see, you have these discrepancies. That's why I believe Emmanuel Bujold, not just as a personal bias, because I consider him a a colleague, but he, he just measured what really counts, which is the area behind the bladder, which means you've got to have some urine in the bladder. So you've got to be able to demarcate that. You've got to turn down your gain on your ultrasound. So you can just measure the lower uterine segment. And then you got the big baby's head behind there. It's tough, guys. So again, out, even if we had a true number uh, where everybody agreed on of what considered what's considered thick and what's considered thin, these are not necessarily easy ultrasounds because the baby's head is in the way. Again, clinical adoption and clinical utility seems to be limited because of these things. All right. So this is why, again, when I heard and I couldn't resist when I heard that there's this Facebook thread out there. Yeah, it's right. They're they're onto something here. But I think it's misleading if if the take-home message is that 
This should be done for everybody because that is not ACOG's stance. And I'm going to give you that here in just a minute. All right, everyone, as we progress here, and I don't want this to take forever, so I, we just want to start getting here to the meat of this stuff. And I told you that there's issues with some observational studies, right? I mean, that goes without saying. There's some biases, even though you try to, uh, to control for variables. So the best would be an RCT. So that brings us to the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Gray Journal, February 2022. All right, still just one year ago, but if you're listening to this at, in 2024, well, I guess it would then be two years ago. So February 2022 in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Now, I'm going to wig you out here. This is, this is going to freak you out. Guess who the first author is of this? No, it's not Emmanuel Bouchold. Good guess, though. First author on this is Patrick Rosenberg. Same dude from 1996. How cool is that? I love that. I think this is fantastic. I, 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 you see, when you do enough research, you find names that keep repeating and you go to enough conferences, you go to ACOG, SMFM, you go to your district meetings. It's just, guys, I know it's kind of a pain in the ass to go to those because you got to leave your office and travel and that sucks. Um, and it's a time commitment. But the truth is, man, you just meet so many people. And when you shake hands, you're like, oh, you're Bill Smith. Okay. And then two months later, you pick up a journal. It's like, oh, there's Bill Smith from location X, Y, and Z. So it's a great networking thing. Guys, I'm so thankful for 10 years. Uh, I mean, I was on the road. Yes, I had my practice in Dallas, but uh, we were part of an FDA trial, several FDA trials for medical devices. And we got to meet people all across the state, uh, the state all across the country and, and internationally and build these great relationships. And they all poured into me. And I, I consider them part of this journey because I would never have gotten the courage uh, the confidence, the experience uh, to do what I'm doing now. And I don't mean just with the podcast. I mean, with, with a variety of things. But this is why stepping outside of your comfort zone, guys, here's a message for 2024. Uh, you don't grow unless you're uncomfortable. Sorry, that sucks, but that's the way it is. I left my little box. when we. I, I remember they came up to me. Hey, you seem to know what you're doing. I was like, thanks. You seem to be a little bit academic. I'm like, thanks. Um, and they're like, hey, would you do some trials? This was 2006. I'm like, sure. Uh, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and, and I mean, I had to learn all this stuff. And so get outside of your comfort zone because that's how you learn stuff. Anyway, back to the RCT by Patrick Rosenberg uh, in 2022. The title is Evaluation of the Usefulness of Ultrasound Measurement of the Lower Uterine Segment Before Delivery for Women with the Previous C-Section, a Randomized Trial. All right, so when you see this, you're like, hey, wait a minute, Patrick Rosenberg, same dude. Uh, okay, I'm sure it's going to be the exact same finding, right? Well, let's just get to the chase. Uh, no, actually, it really didn't help at all. Let me just give you the conclusion, and, and we'll go from there. So the conclusion was, quote, ultrasound measurements of lower uterine segment thickness did not result in a statistically significant lower frequency of maternal and perinatal adverse outcomes than standard management. They go on to say, quote, however, because this study was underpowered, further research should be encouraged, end quote. So they softened their blow, okay? So uh, once you read the entire publication, it's super interesting because the first thing is, hey, we've been looking at this for a while. There's a lot of data on this. It, it seems that maybe we should be checking the lust, the lower uterine segment thickness, um, and let's see if it's legit, but let's do this in an RCT fashion. 
And based on their results, yeah, it really didn't make a difference one way or the other. This was called the Lower Uterine Segment Trial, which was the LUST trial. This goes to show that when you actually randomize and you control and you do it as a level one evidence, kind of observational stuff kind of fall apart. So let me just read it because I don't want to take anything out of context. There are key findings of, of how this randomization went uh, and what their key findings were. Quote, in this randomized clinical trial that included 2,948 women at 36 weeks and zero days to 38 weeks, six days of gestation with one previous low transverse C-section and no contraindication to trial of labor, choice of delivery was based on the ultrasound measurement of the lower uterine segment thickness did not significantly reduce maternal fetal mortality and morbidity compared with usual management, end quote. And if this sounded familiar from a previous publication, it's because, as we mentioned earlier, this wasn't the first time that they put this data together. They actually presented this at the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine at their annual clinical meeting before this came out as a you know, peer review publication uh, in a journal. All right? So this was first done at SMFM uh, and then got reported into uh, this publication. So this is why you're like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. And, and it did. It made some uh, OBGYN news circuits at that time. It was on MedPage. I'm looking at it now under, you know, meeting coverage for SMFM back in 2020. So it just tells you how things, how slow things go to go to print because this just came out in print in 2022. But the original abstract was in February 2020. And the title is, quote, no difference in outcomes with ultrasound guided trial of labor, end quote. So the same information that was first presented at SMFM in 2020 now is a peer review publication. See, this just goes to show that when you control for things in a randomized way uh, using level one evidence uh, and you actually design the study more than just an observational study, things that found that were found with an observational cohort tend to not hold up. All right. So super interesting. And this is why there is this hesitancy to use this. Uh, in the community, and it's not ACOG endorsed. SMFM does not like it, and in CREOG's information, it also doesn't hold up. CREOG stands for the Council of Residency Education of OBGYN. So when you work with OBGYN residents, um, and you work with APCO, that's Association of Professors of Gynecology and Obstetrics, you know CREOG is kind of their go-to for educational info, right? And and it follows. It's all under ACOG, of course, and SMFM. So APCO from the Association of Professors of Gynecology and Obstetrics, APCO says this regarding TOLAC uh, contraindications or indications or inpatient selection. And it's all the typical stuff, right? Basically, history, desires of the patient, why the first C-section was done. But nowhere in there uh, should there be a lower uterine segment involvement. It can be done for education and maybe as as patient information, but that shouldn't be to discourage anybody away from TOLAC. So as APCO states, quote, there is a relationship between the lower uterine thickness and risk of uterine rupture. Oh, okay. Well, maybe. Okay. So that sounds favorable, right? Maybe we should use it. But then they go on to say, but there's absolute cutoffs that are not known at this time ultrasound measurements of the lower uterine segment cannot be used to counsel regarding TOLAC. This is why the concept of measuring the lower uterine segment doesn't make its way into ACOG's practice bulletin, which is number 205, from February 2019 on vaginal birth after cesarean delivery. 
And lastly, as we drive this home, before I give you my personal perspective, this also is why ACOG's practice advisory from December 2021 on, quote, counseling regarding approach to delivery after cesarean and the use of a vaginal birth after cesarean calculator, end quote, doesn't discuss the lower urine segment thickness. This practice advisory basically said, hey, look, you can use a vaginal birth after C-section predictor calculator as an education tool, but that should not be used to discourage a patient who really desires to lack from doing it just because their, their little calculator, uh, you know, calculation that is available online says that it's not going to work. So that's good for education. Um, but shouldn't be used to either allow or deny a person a TOLAC as long as they otherwise meet criteria. This is the same one that also states that any calculator that uses identifiers like race probably shouldn't be used into that because that's irrelevant. Um, there's a lot of weird stuff out there, but this is the practice advisory again, December 2021, that says that we understand that there's these you know prediction calculators out there Really, this should be just part of education, not the de facto tool uh, to allow or deny somebody to have a TOLAC. And nowhere in here does it say that uh, we should measure the lower uterine segment as a way, again, to allow or deny a patient TOLAC ability. Just to be clear, here is the excerpt exactly as it's written from that practice advisory. Quote, a VBAC calculator is one of the many tools that can be used to provide information during shared decision-making discussions. When a calculator is used to provide an estimate of the likelihood of a clinical event, the limitations of the tool, including uncertainty in the estimate and the impact of unmeasured or excluded clinical characteristics, as well as variability in practice patterns, must be be included to balance the discussion. And here it is, quote, a VBAC calculator score should not be used as a barrier to TOLAC, end quote. And as we bring this to a close, so what's my personal perspective? Hey, I'm all for getting some information and I'm all for patient education, but I do not use this as a way to discriminate between who should or should not have a TOLAC. And if you're wondering if we measure the lower uterine segment in our institution for a TOLAC patient, we do not. We don't know what's normal. I mean, 2.3, is it 2.5, is it 3, is it 3.5? There's no uniform criteria. So we agree and we follow ACOG and SMFM stance that just like a calculator result is good for patient information and education, should we see something on ultrasound and find it by chance, because we don't look for that primarily, uh, then we'll give the patient education. But in our location, we do not routinely measure the lower uterine segment's thickness, the lower uterine segment thickness, sorry, that came out weird, um, at all. And again, we're not denying the data. The data is there, but its clinical application right now is not endorsed by the ACOG. All right, podcast family, that brings 2023 to a close for our podcast. We're so thankful for you all. We wish you all the best in 2024. Look, the world is nuts. There's strife. There's confusion. You know what? 
It's life, and life is too short to be miserable. So we are super thankful for you. We're thankful for your friendship, your community, your encouragement, and let's just encourage and build each other up now and in 2024. So thank you all, and we'll see you all in the next year.